This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Collaborative world building. Porting drama system to other games. Late 90s SF films. And the occult plot against Edward II. you doing? I'm getting into character to play the new Plain Gia 5e campaign setting. It's about dinosaurs! Well, technically it's a prehistoric fantasy campaign setting, so not just about dinosaurs, but dinosaurs! I don't think you actually play as a dinosaur, but there are a ton of new kinships, subclasses, monsters, factions. I guess it is possible. I'll just check through this massive 380-page Plain Gia setting book and see. Well, okay... Oh, wow, you totally can play as a dinosaur. Playing Gia is a prehistoric fantasy setting for 5e. It's a place of utter wildness where survival is the only law and must be carved from the world by a force of might and magic. Play a saurian with ancestral memories. Pick from a leather wing, hammer tail, sharp fang, or web foot. Indeed, rawr. Discover a world of raw action, primordial horror, and mystic awe in Playing Gia for 5e. Nothing is as you expect in Playing Gia. Elves are shimmering dreamwalkers. Dwarves are half stone. Humans are beast tamers. Halflings are silent stalkers. Gnomes are filthy scavengers. And dragonborn are just a heartbeat away from their draconic ancestors. The campaign setting book, as well as accessories like the GM screen, adventure soundtrack, and deluxe boxed edition are all available now from Atlas Games. For more, use your tiny flailing arms to type in atlas-games.com slash Plain Gia. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, the flip of cards, the slide of cardboard heroes, and the crunch of pretzels welcome us into the gaming hut where we've got both folds of Peter Frampton coming alive welcoming us in because this is a gaming hut dedicated to collaborative world building and we've teased this i think a couple of times in the blue booking segment and the segment after that that also turned out not to be about this but finally we're getting around to building our world together robin you and i i don't think have ever built a world together although it would be great right well first of all you're not much into building worlds i'm not a fan but you know <laughs> first time for everything <laughs> that would be a one drawback mm -hmm. so i guess people will uh want us to mention microscope so of mm -hmm. course that's an entire game experience that you can then export into other games where the whole point of it is creating a rule structure where there's no one authority behind it, but you all jointly uh, create a world together. So you can skip the rest of our advice and just yeah. go and do yeah. microscope. And, and that works really, really well with other games as well. I've used it repeatedly as ways to collaboratively build the background for a game that was set in the 24th century or a game, my, my supers game, uh, we built out some of the super stuff with it. I've used it in Nobilis. It's, it's just a great tool to let your players, you know, be part of the process. And it's, it's an amazing game. It's terrific. I can also recommend here, uh, recommend with a asterisk, a game called Lexicon. Lexicon is by Neil Krishnaswamy and it is a game where 
The players write entries in a encyclopedia about the world. This takes a lot more buy-in than Microscope does, but it provides wonderful knitted background. I've, I've used lexicon a couple of times. The uh, notion is that everyone writes an entry for uh, one row of the old phone letter keyboard. So you write an entry that begins with A, B, or C, and then you have to have a C also in that entry, a cross-reference to another entry that either hasn't been written yet or one that's already been written. And then as you go through the next week, you do DEF, the next week you do GHI, etc. The trouble is that people are busy, players are eager little puppies, and often your lexicon game taps out around MNO, which is still good. You've still got half an alphabet, but it's harder to get a whole game of lexicon all the way through because it takes literal weeks than microscope. But maybe in this age of, you know, detached gamers all over the place getting together at, at whim, you could play a lexicon game. And once it's done, your reward is you finally get to, you know, get on Zoom and all play together. Oh, and Microscope's designer, while I'm giving uh, footnotes, is a great designer, Ben Robbins, and it's from his company. So look up Microscope Ben Robbins and, you know, click that link, as we say. Right. So even if you do those things, though, that doesn't end your world building process. And maybe you want to all begin from scratch for whatever uh, reason. And so there are several approaches to uh, collaborative world building. One of them is that it is a true collective form where you have to come to a consensus for things to be introduced into the world. Consensus is challenging. And uh, if you want your game to feel less like a writer's room where everything is up <laughs> for grabs and that you might want to instead parcel out responsibilities. And so the I think the most obvious classic form of this is that there is someone, you might call him the world builder or even call her the GM, who is the ultimate editor for the world. That when there's a question as to, you know, does this development fit everything else that we've established and that we want or not, that there is a one deciding person who is the one who goes yay or nay, which of course actual writers' rooms and television do too, because there's right, always yeah. a showrunner to oversee that. It's not a collective commutarian exercise by any means. And so you in this, uh, for the rest of this segment may be in the role of GM, or you may be someone who is adding something to a world that belongs to somebody else or belongs to everybody. And then the question is, do you sort of parcel up responsibilities so that Jenny is in charge of the elves and Dev is in charge of the mole people and when you have to write the history of the interactions between the elves and the mole people, they go off and figure something out together. That's a nice, neat division of responsibilities. But then that may leave everybody else out for weeks on end while the mole people, you know, take center stage. So you might want to say that, well, I'm interested in anthropology. So I'm going to be in charge of the customs and folkways of all the characters, whereas I'm in Dev is interested in material culture. So he'll draw up all the cool swords and pots and everything. How else can, would you uh, look at different ways of dividing world building responsibility? I mean, I think that to putting a pin in the macro question, I'm going to race around to the micro question and say that collaborative world building can be as simple as in the moment they've gone into the saloon and they say, is there a mirror on the wall of the saloon? And you turn to the player who asked that and said, is there? You guys are here. You tell me. And letting the players have authority over their immediate surroundings, while it can occasionally bite you on the leg, is so often super creative and super fun because... First of all, there's more of them than there are of you. They'll give you cool ideas. And second of all, players love to self-sabotage 
when they have a theoretical excuse for it. And so it's like, yeah, there's a mirror, but the faces in it don't match the faces in the room. And you're like, well, now they don't. And uh, that kind of, of collaborative world building on the you know, sort of on a, the low level is also a super important, super helpful, super fun part of a game. And you can, you and know, it does, and it often doesn't even feel like world building. It's, right. It's yeah. more like improv uh, that you have some control over the narrative. You don't necessarily like I didn't invent the old West. I right. just decided that there's a mirror and there's something funny looking in the mirror because of course there is. Right. And then you can go sort of up a level to subject area. Uh, way back in the day, my sort of first real taste of collaborative world building was when I was running games for University of Chicago students. And rather than have to do all the Breton folklore research myself, I said, Daniel, you're in charge of the elves. You go research all the Breton folklore. You come back and tell us what the fairy courts of Brittany look like. And, you know, you have another player who's an Egyptologist and you say, well, you're in charge of pyramids and, and all that wild stuff. And you tell us what our characters are most uh, concerned or interested about. And you can parcel it out based on, you know, previous knowledge as opposed to, you know, gridding your world and saying, well, you have to have the Northwest and you have to have the Southwest and you have to have the Southeast. You can just say, our world is going to reflect the interests and uh, compelling curiosities of its players. Let's build into that so that now there are going to be fairies and pyramids and combined arms warfare or whatever it happens to be. And you can build the world out to reflect those uh, fascinations and those knowledge bases and again, get a richer, more interesting world than if you'd sort of, you know, gone on Wikipedia and, and tried really hard. And another question is, when does it matter and why does it matter that there are things in the world? So you could all have a project together to create an F20 world that all of you can GM at different times with different mm -hmm. players and not necessarily all of whom have world building input. So you might have a core group of people, but someone who just drops in for a session, they just interact with the world the way that they would with Ravenloft or mm -hmm. Forgotten Realms or whatever. There's just a, a world that their character hangs out in. But if you have this other level of creative access that you're working on something and that would imply that you are writing stuff, uh, you're making maps, you're perhaps doing drawings or sketches, and that the world building itself is a big part of the exercise, perhaps even more important and more fun, and certainly a thing that you can do asynchronously than running the game itself. The flip side of that is you may only decide things about the world when they matter in play. So uh, you don't decide what's on the other side of the bridge until you come to the bridge. Mm -hmm. And then in that case, you may divide responsibilities not by culture or by interest, but simply by whose turn it is to answer the question. Right. So yeah, you rotate it. Yeah, you rotate it. And so now uh, you've gone around the table and it's uh, it's Chin's turn. And you say, what's on the other side of the bridge? And and he says, well, there's a, there's a flaming wall. And uh, this is the beginning of the territory of the ghost people. And then you can continue to go along and, and say, okay, well, you know, Pete's uh, sitting next to Chin. What, who are the ghost people? What's they, they seem kind of weird. What, uh, what's their deal? And just go around until you get enough information. And then the characters cross the bridge. And I guess while you're jotting down point for notes, you're also grabbing stats for mm -hmm. what the ghost people might be. If you uh, wind up uh, having to interact with their game mechanics and, uh, and off you go. Right. Uh, another uh, sort of often seen way of doing this is straight up co GMing where like, for example, in an F20 world, you might have IGM, the city, the big uh, Lankmarian city that we play in, and you, the other co-GM, 
you do the jungles and forests and maybe a third GM does the dungeons. And so it's everyone playing to those sorts of strengths and then allowing them to be built out and surprise each other and play with the world in a way that maybe you can't do as well with a solitary GM. Even a solitary GM that invites a lot of input is going to be inviting it by and large in areas that they haven't already got a plan for. So in that sense, it'll be a surprise. But in another sense, you'll know what's coming because you asked them to provide it in, in a way that, that you wouldn't necessarily, if you're not the GM now, you're going into the dungeon. You, it could be anything. It could be ghost people. could be mole people. could be no kind of people whatsoever. And who knows? And then maybe you take information out of that and you bring it back into the city that you're running. And you say, okay, now that I know that there was a, a an ogre necromancer who built that dungeon, maybe he did some stuff in the city and I can start laying trails for that and knitting the world together as opposed to it functionally being three separate worlds that you teleport between right and if there's a question as to which genre to pick and you're not sure where you want to go i would say start with an f20 world as your first experience doing collaborative world building or an f20 uh, may be you know vaguely defined in this instance because the thing that makes D and all of its descendants and relations work is it's sort of an anything goes world mm-hmm. is you can make up a bunch of nutty stuff and it all kind of connects up Whereas if you say, well, we would like a kind of a realistic far future setting that is really tuned into the way that societies develop over time and has realistic technology, that is much harder to uh, build into for one person and even harder for a group of people. And then, you know, harder cubed if you're trying to do it on the fly. Right. And so this, I think, is where you look at your various tools. And I think always you would have the bubbling along you describe the spaceship you tell me about this planet you tell me what's on the other side of the bridge level of of improv and collaborative play and then maybe you've begun it up at the very top with a microscope uh, or a lexicon uh, thing to build out the structure so that everyone knows basically the sorts of magnetic points that their contributions aim for and then it can be as simple as Everyone rotates GMing a planet if you're doing this far future space game. And so we beam down to the planet and now Amanda's the GM and she gets to tell us what's going on on it. And maybe it's something more uh, loosey-goosey than that. But I feel like by and large, the fundamental reason to do it is because you get more creativity. And for me, at least a big part of playing the game is to be surprised. And that's why I love being a GM. I love being surprised by players. Well, when you invite them to surprise you on your home turf, it's even more surprising and even, I think, more rewarding to do it. Right. And the pitfall to look out for in the cases where it's, you know, a group of people either rotating or working as a team with a sort of an editor is someone can bork this sort of collaboration if they become super proprietary about their part of the world. Right. Or more importantly, decide to take a hammer to somebody else's part of the world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a and very uncollaborative thing to do is, you know, last week Dev spent the whole session telling us about the psychology and culture and mythology of the ghost people. And then, well, and then a meteor falls and destroys them all and they're wiped out. And that is probably a cruder example, although maybe someone who's mm-hmm. a complete jerk might try that. But if you, get people sort of dueling each other. Even some of the shared world stories, story anthologies started yeah. to do that for yep. a while where the characters sort of, you know, the authors started barking each other's characters. Right. They'd take turns warfing each other's characters. Yeah. And so I, when you start to see even a hint of that, it's time to step back, have a talk through it, 
someone who wants to do that because they enjoy have more fun wrecking other people's fun probably is going to reveal themselves as being that person. And then you want to, you know, alter the composition of the people involved in the world building. <laughs> what a lovely way of saying, throw them out of your game. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, when someone has said something in a lovely Canadian way, and then in a crude American way, it is obviously a sign that the hut has reached its culmination. And therefore we should exit it and see what lies on the other side of this fascinating advertisement. The skies above New Olympus are patrolled by caped crusaders, but these superior beings are far from heroes. They wield their powers with reckless disregard, serving the interests of corporate overseers and silencing those who oppose their will. You are Clara Keenig, investigative journalist for the pedestrian newspaper. You intend to prove that the privileged superhuman elite do not yet hold a monopoly on justice. Welcome to Alter Egomania, the newest setting for the Gumshoe one-to-one system. Featuring a quick start rules guide, printable problem and edge cards, and a starter adventure. Alter Egomania contains everything you need to run a one-player, one-GM game set in a universe of corrupt superheroes. Exclusively available in PDF. The exciting format unaffected by global paper shortages. That can't get stuck in customs. That's waiting for you right now. At the Pelgrane Press web store. Or drive through RPG. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Beloved Patreon backer Kevin Greenlee asks, Lorefinder took Robin's mystery genre emulation gumshoe engine and married it to the crunchy simulationism of Pathfinder. What traditional gaming systems could be married to the mechanics of drama system? And how, Robin, <laughs> would you do it? Right. So let's move to the how. So the way that you would do that is that you would extend the economy of the dramatic scenes in drama system over a series of uh, episodes. So that rather than refreshing all of the tokens that you exchange for the token economy at the beginning of a session, the way that you would in a regular drama system here, big chunks of every session are going to be taken up with the procedural action of whatever trad game you've decided to intersperse with it. And you're going to have to play by ear, depending on your own timing and how long it takes you to do things in a given game. So, for example, a super crunchy, you know, say Pathfinder. If there's a Pathfinder fight, that could be two and a half hours of your mm -hmm. session, four hour session. And so maybe you have time for, you know, one or two drama scenes before and after it. So you want to make sure that, say, every 16 to 20 scenes, which is about what you would do in a regular session of just drama system, that the tokens then refresh. But they don't refresh in the middle of a session. They refresh after you've had, you know, 16 to 20 dramatic scenes and you're starting a new session. And so that's all of the mechanics that you would need for the drama system side of things. The other question then is what games imply a group of people who have a lot to work out with each other over time, who nonetheless continue to collaborate on some big procedural thing. And so you'd be, I think, probably most of the time adding another premise on top of the trad game. And that premise would be either that we are either an actual literal family uh, with a lot to work out, 
or are a surrogate family or a mixture of both. But anyway, your group of people who are pretty much kind of stuck with each other, you have to, you have emotional bonds and some other sort of situation that keeps you together over time. And then every so often you go out and get into a fight, whether that's a spaceship battle or going in and cleaning out a room in a dungeon or solving a mystery actually is the one that I think is a little tough because the mystery structure doesn't as easily intersperse with a dramatic structure that it once it starts, it has its own momentum. So I think you're looking for something that sort of has missions, has kind of narrow missions that you can break up into little chunks. And so, for example, you know, if, if you're running an F20 style game, it's like we go out and we fight one bunch of people in the wilderness near our fortress every so often when we're threatened. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't stop us from going back home and having all of our issues together. I think that you could also, I think it would slot in easier structurally to games that already have an explicit downtime sort of mechanic. Both Delta Green and Fall of Delta Green have the vignettes where you try and rebuild your broken stability. You could very easily add a drama system vignette in which either it's you guys, you know, engaging in trying to desperately connect as human beings, despite all the horrible things you've seen, or you could pick one of the characters who's sort of the you know lead character of the TV show or whatever. And we play their family who can't know anything about their Delta green operations. And for some reason, they're the ones we watch. They're the most fun or the, had the most interesting backstory. Weren't a moody loner from the CIA, whatever it is. And so you could do that, or you could do, in theory, a, a drama system version where you're playing the Delta Green XCOM that is trying to, you know, deal with all their wrangling issues. And it gives you a sidelight on how the missions go. You can do it, for example, in a winter session of Pendragon or a winter section of Mouse Guard where you're not supposed to be going out and doing anything. You are stuck back at your house. I feel like there's a lot of games, especially in this uh, post story game era that explicitly have these little sejuras in the action to, you know, do accounting or to, or build up again. Right. And, and the granddaddy of those is Ars Magica, right, you yeah. mentioned them. where again, you could have a uh, drama system game either between all the Magi who finally have to look at each other across the table in winter, or you can have it between, you know, the, the family that actually keeps the covenant together, the major domo and the cook and everybody else. And that's, right the story and you could steal a concept from ars magica and import it somewhere else where half of the time you are the people running the show and the other half of the time the procedural stuff is actually done by another set of characters Mm -hmm. and so there's a lot of drama around you know what do we send our lackeys out to do and so this could even be like you know the the family that secretly runs delta green and everybody thinks it's you know a government department and well it is but also there's this a group of people who've come down through the centuries who really run it and they have a lot of stuff to work out. And then the next week you do your Delta green thing where you're sent on, you know, the mission that everybody finally agreed to send you on. And now your other set of characters goes off and that could have uh, little fun elements in that the uh, mission characters could show up as supporting players uh, played by the GM in the drama system chunks. And sometimes the drama system characters can they show up as your patron giving you the mission in the um, mission chunk, and you can have them sort of go 
uh, back and forth. Maybe somebody gets upgraded into the command structure uh, drama part, or they get downgraded down into the, you know, they have to go on a mission for once. And it's like, oh, your character, you know, your character in drama system, they only die when you give permission for that to happen. But now you're in the Delta Green half. So <laughs> yeah. you may have to create a new character in drama. So that could create a sense of, of threat. And alternating back and forth between the two, I think, helps solve all of the pacing and mechanical problems that I tried to solve at the beginning in those other ways. So in that one, in that one, you would just have a regular drama system session with the regular economy. The next week, it would be all mission. And uh, and I think that way you could even, since we've already mentioned Fall of Delta Green, which is, of course, a gumshoe game, that would also solve the mysteries and drama not weaving together too well problem. And I guess I should mention, obviously, it would make a superb engine for a Vampire the Masquerade coterie, or better yet, if your coterie is all members of a family, if all of your vampires are part of an extended family in some way, and that's your coterie, it literally falls out of the sky on you how well that would work. Uh, many vampire players generate more drama than they consume already, but others might be looking for a more structured or gameable way to do it. And certainly drama system can fit very well in a sort of a, whether it's, you know, sort of dark shadowsy or Godfather or something in between, but the family with problems that involve, you know, predation is, uh, it, it's the standard vampire model for a lot of reasons. Right. And, and even if you weren't a family before you became vampires, you kind of are now. That's part of the Yeah, concept. because you're all in the coterie and you're stuck together by the uh, prince saying, you all have to be there in that neighborhood because that's what I've assigned you. So stop whining. Right. I would see that one as an instance where you're mostly playing regular drama system, except you use the vampire rules when it turns procedural, mm -hmm. when you you know decide to go out and you know, kill someone or someone decides to come and kill you and that uh, those rules come into play then. And that might happen fairly infrequently because I think that sort of people who would enjoy playing this would mostly do the drama and start to then resort to the, the killing and die rolling only as sort of a last resort. Well, I mean, I tried very hard to actually provide mechanical support to the sort of um, high emotional uh, interplay that is a core of vampire experience and had very little mechanical support before, uh, this would provide even more mechanical support, even better, more elegant, dare I say, mechanical support. If you start with drama system and then, as you say, add the vampire procedural for um, the hunting roles or the avoiding the, you know, inquisition roles or whatever. And that, that I think is, is really uh, pregnant with play possibility. Other, I think more obvious trad games to, uh, wed with drama system, science fiction, where you are a family or a quasi-family aboard a spaceship that goes around and uh, does missions, and it moves from place to place. Your drama moves with you, mm -hmm. but the new people you engage with uh, are different. That The mercantile aspect uh, that goes with classic traveler, I think, is really good for that because it's You've got a family business, right? It's and, and, and Traveler even has a built-in sort of uh, nobility and aristocracy, so Regency-style drama fits perfectly in the in the milieu. Yeah, so it's uh, Pride and Prejudice or Succession uh, on a spaceship or a space station. Mm -hmm. And, of course, uh, I think the thing that most people think about when they think about inter-character drama is superheroes. Mm -hmm. And, again, uh, there are lots of uh, superhero families, so you could do your version of the Fantastic Four or, you know, even, you know, the... Avengers or Justice League or whatever, if you assume a 
you know, a level of emotional tie between those uh, characters or, you know, you could do the Superman yep. family or, or what have you. I actually thought about doing that in my current supers game, doing it with drama system cutouts where we would do the sort of super soap Legion of superheroes style stuff as, as cut scenes or cut episodes. And I sort of backed off it because it seemed like there was an uneven degree of enthusiasm. All the players were good. They said they'd try it, but some were like, well, I'll try it. And others were like, I'll do it. And so I thought <laughs> this may not be the ideal time to put drama system into the mix. Yeah. I think if you've got some people who you think are, first of all, if you have people who, who you know won't be into it, don't, don't do, do that. It. That's yeah. obvious. <laughs> but also if you have some people who you think aren't sure whether they're into it, but you have a feeling they will be, I wouldn't go for this hybrid structure for that. I would yeah. go with a straight drama system first. I think that was um, part of it was that I thought maybe I should run a, a drama system episode for them and see who really takes to it and who fights against it mechanically, because not every system is for everybody, even the best ones. Right. And because there is sometimes some resistance in figuring out how drama system works and what you should be doing, and particularly in how to call a dramatic scene with your character, if you give certain players the resort of, but what if I just go out and start a fight instead? They're always going to do that. Yeah. And so it will be a barrier to them getting into and enjoying drama. System. I would rather go to Vietnam than be in a drama system scene with you. <laughs> <laughs> or or not even that. Like if they could think of the scene, it's, a, it's often uh, my experience of people who want to call procedural scenes in drama system is that they're stumped for inspiration of what to do. Mm -hmm. And if you have an easy call of something other than that, you're never going to jump that theoretical hurdle. Well, anyway, on that note, I think it's time for us to uh, have another look around. I see an exciting commercial in the distance, and I know from experience that there's probably something on the other side of that as well. The Best of Asphageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Keep the world of this podcast in good order by joining such creative Patreon backers as... Dan Simons. Jeff Cars. Jean-Francois Parody. Carl Schmidt. And Martin Runquist. Well, the carpet is finally getting picked up after accumulating all that weed funk from midnight movies 
It's laid down in a, a more of a beige, maybe even a beige orange if you're in a fancy theater. But we can walk up it. It smells clean. We're in a new decade, finally. Everyone is listening to Nirvana and uh, nodding their heads and saying, yeah, the man, while doing nothing to prevent him. And we are in the center seat, center aisle of the Cinema Hut, watching the science fiction cinema essentials. We're going to begin, I guess, with a cinema mentionable of our sorts. We talked about blockbusters and the aim, the chase for the next SF blockbuster. Roland Emmerich, whenever someone says blockbuster, he chases it. Sometimes he gets there, more often not so much. Stargate, an amiable film, good fun, spawned a half-decent TV show, but uh, other than that, Robin, what do you have to say about Stargate? I'm just noting its existence of that the uh, genre has gotten to the point where there can be franchises that, you know, don't even need an essential starter. Right. Like the, the genre is popular enough that a cult a movie that isn't quite a blockbuster that doesn't change anything still has a TV show that's connected to it. And so, uh, and there are people who are listening to this who wish that we liked it better because they're giant Stargate fans. <laughs> However, a film that we are going to uh, mention as an essential, Terry Gilliam is back, which for them was sort of a, a career resurgence coming back to direct a screenplay that he did not develop and just sort of, uh, but he Gilliamizes it big time. Yep. Because we're talking about 12 Monkeys from 1993. This is, I think, influential on time travel cinema in the sense that the future that they're sending people back from time in is terrible yeah. and the weird uh, gilliamness of the production design of the time machinery is great it's sort of a, a grody terrible future and it becomes an action thriller in a way when he comes back in time and meets Madeline Stowe as the sympathetic psychiatrist who's questioning whether he's really from the future we have Brad Pitt who has a great sort of scene ceiling supporting role as the guy he uh, meets in the psychiatric facility and it is also notable for uh, this series in that is a, a not a remake but an inspired by chris marker's la jete which is not a thriller by any means it's an experimental film as we mentioned before told with stills and here becomes an unlikely hollywood hit yeah the he which i don't know if you mentioned is bruce willis so uh, again we're taking an action star sending them through time this is the formula that probably got it greenlit but it becomes, uh, I think it's, it's true to La Jetée because La Jetée is about, you know, the question of reality, the question of, uh, love and the question of predestination. 12 Monkeys deals with all of those things in much the same way that La Jetée does. It just deals with them at longer and in motion. So it's, uh, I, I wouldn't call it a remake and I would stick by inspired by, but it's also very faithful to La Jetée in a way that, maybe is harder to see because there is all the other stuff going on, the Gilliam stuff. Because it's a genre shifted. Right. But only to back up what you said, Brad Pitt's, you know, sort of standout performance. This was, he's more than just a pretty face for Brad. And he plays the sort of wise fool, the, the, the Merlin figure that, that tells you what's going on. And you don't want to believe it because it's horrible, much like the future will be. It's a wonderful movie. It is Gilliam. And I think because he's directing someone else's script, it's Gilliam with his, I don't want to say worst, but his most Gilliam instincts are hemmed in a little bit. And so I, I think the sort of the thing you take away from it is the same sort of sweet, almost Proustian feeling about the past and about time that you take from La Jetée. And in that way, also emotionally, it's a successful adaptation, if that's the word we want to use of, of that earlier film. So I think it's. It's good for a lot of surface reasons, and then unusually for the genre and for later Gilliam, it's good for a lot of 
almost antithetical reasons that are sort of hiding underneath the surface. And uh, it, it definitely repays rewatching and it definitely repays, you know, sort of sitting and thinking about. Right. And now to another mentionable is A Strange Days by Catherine Bigelow from 1995 uh, with Ray Fiennes and Juliet Lewis. It is, I think, worth mentioning because it is the first film to really fully grapple with virtual reality and reality alteration. And it is very interesting in the early going, but then it doesn't quite make it to the third act. Yeah, it's visually inventive. It's brilliant. I mean, when Catherine Bigelow made that, I think a lot of people thought, oh, this is going to be a departure for her. And then it kind of wasn't. But she really leaned into all the visual possibilities, the, the virtual realities, you say, the questioning of what's what's true, what's happening. It's almost a nihilist film in many ways. And then it does, as you say, slam into a wall somewhere and come apart. And I think I maybe put the slam into a wall place a little later than you do, but it undeniably happens. And that's why it's a mentionable because sadly, you know, sticking the landing is hard. And it's why if you don't do it, you generally don't get to be an essential. Next, we have another anime film entering the ranks of the essentials. That's Ghost in the Shell by Memorial Ushi from 1995. Again, uh, we have uh, foregrounded visuals. Again, we have a realization of cyberpunk that isn't quite manageable in live action yet. And this is very much uh, in the mold of Blade Runner in that it is the, uh, except this is the version where the hero who's tracking the cyborgs, this time they're like uh, brain stealing. They're, they're hacking into people's minds because there's tons of different plot developments happening because it's based on a manga. But it's, Again, uh, sort of the visual richness more than necessarily your emotional connection to the characters. That is what makes this a, a big deal. And it's also a big deal because it influences so many other people who, who, again, take all of the ideas and images from this and then try to make them work in live action. Including a unsuccessful live action adaptation of this movie, which happens much later and is just sad. But this movie, it's evidence that Catherine Bigelow is drinking something in the water because this movie is also about questions of identity, questions of reality, virtual reality. What happens if your perceptions are taken over? What do your perceptions even mean in an increasingly wired universe? And it also marries it to a pretty strong police procedural plot. It's not the private eye plot of Blade Runner. It's more the sort of uh, police procedural, almost a touch of Captain America or Batman as Major, the, the main character, is literally transferred into a new shell. And so they have sort of new uh, understanding of themselves, which is being questioned because everything uh, that you understand is questionable in the world. It's a uh, it's, it's just over and above the visuals. I think this is the first anime a masterpiece, at least of the ones that I've seen, that really also brings it in terms of story, in terms of character, and in sort of the uh, the more conventional cinema. And to, to my mind, that only makes it even more compelling, even more interesting. And the philosophical things that it plays with are, are have always been my sort of sweet meat. I, I love this questions of perception at the center of film. It's it's why I love Total Recall so much when I saw it. And it's, again, really what undergirds Ghost in the Shell and makes it more than just, oh, a cool cop movie only with robots, only in the future, only in anime. Next, we uh, return to the world of franchises with something that was a thrill and a surprise, which is that it was possible to make a really great Star Trek Next Generation movie. Uh, Next Generation was less built for cinematic adaptation, as we saw with all the other ones, because it was much more of an ensemble show, which, uh, you know, divided Kirk into two different people. And But this one made excellent use not only of the iconic villains of Next Generation, the Borg, but it also had a fun time travel element. This time it travels 
not to a recognizable past to us, but a big deal, important past in the uh, Star Trek continuity and has a mix of genuine suspense and horror, because that's what the Borg are all about, but also a sort of a, a fun, satisfying romp element to it. Never again replicated for Next <laughs> Generation, but it uh, worked for this one uh, in a way because it's sort of the best of Wrath of Khan somehow mixed with the uh, Voyage Home. Yeah, this is very much you know, what if Voyage Home, but serious, because what makes Voyage Home work was the comedy. I feel like maybe I would mention it rather than assent it. But Star Trek First Contact is absolutely what you said. It's the only good next gen movie. And for that alone, I guess it deserves a gold star. I feel like it uses the holodeck, almost the only interesting use of the holodeck in the whole history of the franchise. So I guess it gets a point for that. The Borg are great up on the big screen. No denying that. It's, to my mind, it's like a really good Next Generation episode, which, again, would make it less valuable than any original series episode. But still, you know, it killed some time. And it is nice to see Patrick Stewart actually getting to act in in the role of Picard, which he very seldom got to do and does get to do in this. So it's uh, it's 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 good fun with old buddies. But I, I would call it more of a uh, mentionable hangout than a epic making essential. And very much mentionable for me. It's just a, a big, giant blockbuster that shows that you can take all of these science fictional elements mix them with the disaster movie and have a big giant hit that is also goofy nonsense and that's independence day by roland emmerich from 1996 when i first saw the trailer of all the world landmarks being destroyed by these alien vessels i was actually genuinely terrified there was a chilling moment and then when you see the film it's a big, goofy nonsense, but it was a giant hit, so we should mention it. And also, it is the apotheosis of all of those 1950s alien invasion essentials that we talked about, mostly Earth versus the Flying Saucers, which, again, I was the guy that uh, loved, so maybe this is why I put it on our uh, mentionables list. But it is the culmination of that filmmaking tradition. It is absolutely true to it. It does it superbly. If what you uh, wanted was 1956 to come around again, 1996 uh, made it happen. Another great Jeff Goldblum role, I think, in terms of our picking out threads from other things. And it, it's got a lot of uh, feel-good moments in, in right. the same and way. It's that good to know the alien invaders are Mac compatible. Right, exactly. In the same way that Star Trek First Contact is a good time at the theater, I would exactly say this is. It's just that you're not, oh, remember how great Star Trek The Next Generation was? You're, oh, remember how great Invaders from Mars was? It's that exact same coasting on nostalgia, but doing it to the peak of Roland Emmerich's uh, ability. Uh, again, I don't argue for its essentiality, although it, its DNA, I think, is in a lot of movies since way more than not necessarily uh, some, for good, though. <laughs> but not necessarily for in a good way. But again, you think people would yell at us if we left off Stargate? My goodness. Yeah. Now we come to it. Turns out that the uh, best Hollywood John Woo movie also happens to have some science fiction in it. Mm -hmm. So we get to talk about Face Off by John Woo from 1996. This, of course, the the science fictional bit is that the ultra-villainous character played by Nicolas Cage uh, swaps faces with the ultra-righteous federal agent played by uh, John Travolta, and they get to play each other. And that is a fun twist. It is in a an alternate present <laughs> where there's like a futuristic super prison in the middle for a sequence. Mostly, though, this is a showcase for John Woo's amazing action chops. He gets to put all of his gestures in there right down to the uh, to the doves. 
And it is fun seeing those two character actors, leading men, become even more character actor leading men as they interact with each other. The legend has it that Travolta said to Cage that I'm going to have to imitate and do a version of you because I, you can't really do an impression of me. I'm not that mannered. And then every other performance that Travolta gave after that was <laughs> as mannered as the fake John Travolta that they invented so that Nicolas Cage could do them. They're both doing Nick Cage in that movie. And forever after, Travolta is also his own variant Nick Cage. Well, it turns out it was better than his original John Travolta in many ways. Yeah, I, I think you have somehow said John Woo without mentioning what a heart-stopping thrill ride of an action film this is. It's amazing on that level. Uh, it's very much the hold on, that thing that you throw away and don't mention in Mission Impossible. What was, What if that was the whole movie? And, you know, if science fiction is about a piece of technology changing lives, well, this is that. Again, it, it's John Woo's best English language film. I don't think there's any question about that. Everything you said about the acting is absolutely correct. It's just a uh, you know, it, it, it's that sort of sunny uplands of 90s film that uh, even John Woo got to touch before, uh, you know, we all moved on into a darker future, similar to that in Starship Troopers, our, I think our last film. But again, 1997 Verhoeven taking another bite at the apple of adapting a science fiction classic. In this case, I think it was Diego Rivera drawing murals on the classical architecture adapting. It's really more of a travesty of, of Heinlein, but that's fine by me. More of a deliberate travesty. And again, if you loved Robert Heinlein's original novel, as I did, it may take a couple of watchings to realize that movies and books are different things and that Verhoeven is doing his own project, stepping on Heinlein's back to do so. But uh, the book is still there. You're still welcome to read it. But the movie, I think, is a remarkable success of tone, while in many ways, you know, I think Verhoeven almost succeeds against his better judgment. He's trying to draw an attractive fascist universe that's fighting aliens. And the irony is meant to be, this is an attractive universe, but they're fascists. What's going on? I think a lot of people are like, oh my goodness, Casper Van Dien, Dina Meyer, Denise Richards, fascism is cute. <laughs> and there's Neil Patrick Harris, little Doogie Hauser Gestapo showing up. I mean, it's a... The it's problem a, with illustrating the appeal of fascism is that you illustrate the appeal of fascism. Illustrate the appeal of fascism, exactly. It's, it's a very, you know, for a movie that's supposed to be about Starship Troopers of the Future fighting off alien bug invasions, it's a remarkable mood piece. And the mood is one, uh, again, taken from Heinlein's non-fascist novel about a a good society that it's been made on earth by the sacrifices of military men. And it has become this sort of peon, almost a, you know, a recruiting poster in many ways for this fascist earth that Verhoeven has imagined in his mind as a satire. It works as a satire, but it, it works so well on the surface level that you don't even need the satire if you don't want it. And that makes it, I think an essential, uh, if only as a cautionary tale. And it's, uh, it's, it's rewatchable, you know, regardless of how, you know, you may have sworn on Robert Heinlein's grave never to do it. It comes on late at night and you watch the rest of it. Yeah, it's, as we've already touched on, it's a bit of a thinker in that it throws a curveball at the audience and a, a chunk of the audience misses that curveball. And this is made, you know, perfectly clear by the filmmaker uh, what is going on. Uh, it has been argued that also somewhat like 300, which will, is not part of the science fiction corpus, that you're seeing, you know, the propaganda work of the culture that is depicted in it. I 
don't think it quite culminates as a an entertainment or a movie the way that you know Verhoeven's other essentials do but I think because of that whole tricky use of irony in the statement that it's making that it definitely uh, elevates itself into our uh, must-see list and we'll have more of our must-see list uh, next week but right now we'll have more of this episode on the other side of this here exciting commercial message In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the sourcebook for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation X! In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray, plausibly deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the nirvana of Nyarlathos. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. It's time once more to wend our way up the creakety cobweb stairs, where we're going to pause on the landing, we're going to wave to the portrait of the mystic salamander, and then we're going to head on in to the Edwardian parlor of the consulting occultist. But this time I think he's got some medieval decor going on because we're headed to a story from the 14th century, which the consulting occultist is going to tell us about. He's going to talk about that time when a bunch of local business folk from Coventry hired a uh, sorcerer and his apprentice to kill the king. And the king he chose, they chose to kill was Edward II. The sorcerer was named John of Nottingham. His assistant was Robert Marshall. And Ken, I guess we want to start by describing Edward II, known from a Christopher Marlowe play. He famously had some favorites that he played, and he famously was in conflict with the nobility to uh, the point where uh, sometimes he would have to execute one of his favorites in order to placate them. At other times, they were actively at war with each other. So he did not have the smoothest, happiest reign. And uh, when he had to impose some taxes, uh, not everybody liked it. Yeah, he's basically constantly facing baronial rebellions and putting them down. We are at the beginning of the Little Ice Age in 1324. So harvests have all been terrible for the last decade. Things are, are not good in the countryside. And when harvests aren't good, the king's still got to eat, so the taxes go up. When you've got barons to crush, you've got to pay for the mercenaries and soldiers you use to crush them. So taxes got to go up. And in Coventry, 
Taxes went up because the king turned tax collecting over to the prior of Coventry. And the prior of Coventry would show up and say, that's for the king, and that's for the prior of Coventry, and that's for looking at me funny. That's the thing when you put in a middleman, he's got to get his beak wet. Got to get his beak wet. So 27 middle-class craftsmen, their their names are all sort of, you know, things like Taylor and Miller, things like that. They're all listed in the in, in the court documents, not to spoil anything. 27 of them show up and approach John of Nottingham. And first they say, we want to swear you to silence about what we're about to ask. And John of Nottingham, this not being his first source, source rodeo, says part of the service. And they say, we'd like you to kill King Edward II and his favorite, Hugh Dispenser the Younger. And while you're killing Hugh Dispensers, kill Hugh the Elder Dispenser. We don't like him either. And oh, also kill the Prior of Coventry and kill his Seneschal, Nickel Crump, and kill the guy who runs his cellar because we think he's collecting taxes on his own. And uh, let's see. What is that? That's <laughs> Do we get a deal for seven? Let's do seven. Um, and you can test your spell on this guy, Richard Dassault. I don't know what made Richard Dassault the person you wanted to test your death spell on, but I assume he was just annoying, probably, you know, spoiled Canterbury Tales. Well, I guess some people have a punchable face. I guess he had an ensorcelable face. A necromantable face. So, John of Nottingham says, you've come to the right place. The fee will be 20 pounds for me and 15 pounds for my buddy Marshall. Right. So, he just generally, it, it is known, at least to the, the artisans of Coventry, that he he's a sorcerer, right? Yeah. They just it, go to him and do things. That's his, that's his vibe, it's right? period of history where you're not going to get thrown on a fire for that, apparently. Well, the, this is before the Malleus Maleficarum and the Great Witch Hunt begins. This is an era where if you're an astrologer, you're making your money selling horoscopes, and the way that you make your money selling horoscopes is you hint that you have even more power than that. And uh, you say, well, I I could, you know, call up great and vasty powers, but A, it's expensive, and B, you know, who needs that? Here's your horoscope. That'll be two shillings. Yeah. I just look at the charts mostly, but if you need a wave of murders, that, that, but that, costs that would money. be a possibility for me. Yeah. So, um... Just to uh, run the numbers, I went to a calculator and it gave me two possibilities for that 20 pounds. It's either 16,000 pounds or it's 300,000 pounds, depending on if you're taking your pay in goods or services. So just throw that out in the, in the, it's a, it's a goodly sum even to kill seven guys. I feel like I'm going to say if, if they're being taxed to oblivion that they probably have the lower amount yeah. <laughs> to, to, to pay. Right. So anyway, the other thing that he negotiates is that he wants a sanctuary board and lodging in a religious house, not in Coventry, because what he does not want to be is around getting investigated when everyone starts dropping dead. And they agree to that. So they make a down payment of seven pounds, seven shillings, and they bring him seven pounds of wax and two yards of fine canvas. And from those ingredients, John, and Marshall, one assumes, and I assume Marshall does all the hard part, makes seven effigies. The king, all the records say, has a wax crown on, so you know he's the king. They're using an abandoned house in Shortley Park, which is just south of Coventry at the time, and they work pretty hard at it from December 6th to June to uh, right around Ascension Day. And one assumes that some of this is about going back to your 27 Burgesses and saying, man, it would be easier to build those effigies if we had a roast ox. That would be nice. 
So one assumes there's a bit of stretching your, you know, expense account. That's just contracting. Mm -hmm. But (laughs) yeah, this is just the thing where it's, I thought that the people, well, you know, we've got a back order on the, on the wax crown. By June 13, 24, though, all the back orders have come in. The ox has been eaten. People have said we'd like the rest of the money. So they run the field test. John has Robert insert a sharp pointed leaden branch into the head of the Richard Dassault effigy. They send Marshall around to ask, hey, so how's Richard Dassault? And everyone's like, it's amazing. He suddenly doesn't recognize anyone and he shrieks Harrow all the time. So I wonder if he knew about this, if it's a nocebo effect. Mm -hmm. Maybe Richard Dassault was just going around expecting someone to ensorcel him to death the whole time, or maybe it was just a coincidence, or maybe it was magic. Anyway, three days later, they pull it out of the head and they put it into his heart. And that's when he takes to his bed and he dies three days after that. So that's how the magic works. And then the records aren't super clear, but it looks like Marshall gets cold feet and turns state's evidence in October of 1324. And I don't know if it means that they thought that they needed another six months to get the the rest of the effigies ready or why they didn't immediately start stabbing people. But right, for but whatever reason, Marshall's eating all the ox and they'd eaten all the ox looking for a new patron. It, it may have been, you know, hold up with the, with, with the rest of those uh, shillings and pounds. That could have been a thing. But anyway, Marshall maybe noticing he's only getting 15 and he's doing all the stabbing and all the wax molding runs to the County coroner basically and says, I know how Richard Dassault died and it was black magic and my boss did it. So John and the 27 Burgesses of Coventry are all dragged before the King's bench. They're tried in June of 1325 and they're found innocent because there's no evidence. There's no evidence that anyone ever did any magic. There's no evidence that any magic contract was ever signed. It's just, uh, we can't do anything. You know, they're walking on the technicality of magic, not being real. And there's no way to prove that Richard just so died of that. And also I assume everyone sort of wanted him dead. So whatever, uh, justice was still served. Robin, you'll be glad to know because John of Nottingham dies in prison while awaiting trial. And Robert Marshall, they said, you're the kind of guy that's probably wanted for something else. Let's just put you back in jail until we can figure out for what. And he vanishes from history. That's highly precedented at that point. <laughs> that happened before happened afterwards. Yep. And, uh, Hugh Dispenser, you'll all be glad to know, got very, very scared and wrote to the Pope, wrote to Pope John the 22nd saying, I am being persecuted by necromancers. What can you do for me? And the Pope says, I don't know, prayer. Don't be a jerk. The Pope says, turn to God with your whole heart and make a good confession and such satisfaction as shall be enjoined. No other remedies are necessary beyond this general indulgence. Yeah. Catholicism. Try yeah. some Catholicism. I'm the Pope. That's of try praying what I'm to say. and try not making everyone in Coventry want you dead. That would be my advice. So happy ending, Robin. Queen Isabella, who is King Edward's queen and found that job unsatisfying on every level, one assumes, raises an army in France, invades England. The unkilled barons rise up on her behalf and uh, the dispensers are grabbed trying to steal the treasury. They're hung, drawn and quartered and uh, their bodies are left hanging on the gates for so another. Maybe it was just delayed magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the magic of Queen Isabella getting mad. Yeah. <laughs> Which I don't know if you need all of those wax effigies to make that happen, but it's nice to see it. But the effigies don't hurt anyway. Yeah, I mean, well, except for Richard Dassault, they they hurt him. But yeah. there we are. 
But that is Not the story. Not provably, though. The, the, <laughs> yes. Well, that's that's how you do your necromancy is you make sure you have a thing that one of the Burgess's assistants can run away and melt in case there's a problem. That's why deniable necromancy right. is a common phrase. Why, this is just waxed canvas like you might have around any abandoned house in Coventry. I don't even know what you're talking about. It's not even, it's barely king-shaped. Just wearing my wax crown like I do. Yeah, so that's the uh, situation. John of Nottingham appears only in this court record and vanishes again. Well, he doesn't vanish. He dies in prison. But we don't know what else he got up to. Like I say, I assume he was an astrologer because that's how you made your money as a sorcerer back in the day. But he may have had a, a lengthy career of killing people up in Nottingham, which is what he was doing in Coventry is a possibility. So you could do an in-period scenario where you are trying to crack the effigy conspiracy and you're trying to stop that from happening. And maybe you're the one who convinces Marshall to turn state's evidence. And that's the conclusion of that. And of course, at any later period where you want to do an occult adventure, the effigies themselves, we've been speculating that they were melted down or spirited away, but you know, things have a way of getting stored and then coming back. So Mm -hmm. you could have these effigies return and be uh, MacGuffins that could be converted into uh, a means of, you know, killing some contemporary person or just the formula for doing that could be the thing that the, uh, bad guys are are using to bump people off and that the player characters are trying to unwind. Yeah. And the notion of a sort of a six month effigy to murder process, I think is a nice bracketing for a game, right? That you figure out that there's some sort of necromancy going on and you know that in the next six months, someone's going to die over a six day period. And that I think gives you a good rhythm that the first six months are figuring out who's got the effigy magic, who's doing bad stuff. And then the first guy, the, you know, the, most killable NPC, you know, drops down shouting harrow and can't remember anything. And now, you know, you have six days, the timer, the clock is ticking uh, and has just been invented. And you really have to step up and, and hunt down a necromancer. And one assumes, although no one has ever said that John of Nottingham had a thing to do with demons, one assumes he's got some kind of protection magically, whether it be a a, a chained up ghost or, or some other kind of a, a thing that prevents him from being pestered in his house while he's slowly building effigies. And while the player characters, when they bust into the effigy warehouse and find them, it could be, you know, the king and his favorites, or it could be them. Right. It could be effigies of you. And you'd say, well, I'm glad we've captured these effigies, but in another six months, they'll be able to reconstruct them. We'd better take care of that. Or you could be working for the king and investigating this and sort of, sure, on the surface... You're saying there's no evidence and we're not worried about that. Although Hugh Sr. is pretty worried about that. Yep. Maybe Hugh Sr. is the one who hires the player characters. And uh, like many patrons, you're not necessarily sure if you're 100% on his side. Yeah, because he's eminently killable, as we've noticed. And even the Pope is not a big fan of this guy. And Popes are generally pretty nice to rich, powerful people who write them. So that's a statement. I'm not sure if the Pope was being not nice. He was just being very popey. That's that's like the standard answer. It was a, it was still a little bit of a, you know, your call is very important to us. Energy, right. well, there's a bit I, of I a think. blow off. Sure. Yeah, right. Uh, well, I think we've got a bunch of different possible scenarios out of this. And uh, another interesting historical footnote that I just stumbled across by accident. I mean, we're glad to have you expand upon Ken. And you know what? That's the sort of thing that, not exactly, but sort of in the same ballpark that you'll hear next week when you tune into our next episode of this here podcast. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askvagown. Bark Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Meet our petition with the best kind of drama token by joining such dramatic backers as... James Stewart. Sean Stevenson. Louis Sylvester. Luke Silburn. And Matthew Preston. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Show your heroic readiness to get on with the scenario with our latest design, Premise Acceptor. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.